The power of the argument comes from the inclusion. You can, you can only get the benefits of diversity by also including those groups in things like decision-making in the Army. Hey everyone, Happy New Year and welcome back to the SOCH Podcast. This is your producer, Major Haziano, speaking from the West Point Department of Social Sciences. For this edition of the pod, we are lucky to have Dr. Jason Lyle as our guest to discuss Divided Armies, his recent book on how diversity, inclusion, and equity impact the military's performance on the battlefield. You might have heard a lot of discussion in recent years about diversity and inclusion issues in society, but you probably haven't heard as much on whether these factors actually impact a military's warfighting capabilities. That is, does a diverse and inclusive military fight better than one that isn't? Do things such as a state's pre-war treatment of its own citizens, the military's ethnic composition, and the level of societal inclusion influence how an army will perform on the battlefield? Do these factors shape a state's civil-military relations? Can quantitative data be used to find the answers to these questions? Social Department's Captain Charlene Hudwanek discussed these topics and more with Dr. Lyle. Dr. Lyle is a James Wright Chair of Transnational Studies and Associate Professor of Government at Dartmouth and recently visited the United States Military Academy to speak to cadets and faculty. Take a quick listen and let us know what you think. Welcome to today's podcast episode. This is Captain Charlene Hudwanek, and I'm here today with Dr. Jason Lyle, uh, the Chair of Transnational Studies and Associate Professor at Dartmouth. He is also the award-winning author of Divided Armies. His book and research examines the effects of political violence and military inequality. Uh, Jay, welcome back to West Point. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. So today I wanted to talk to you about the important lessons from your book, Divided Armies, um, regarding some things that military leaders and organizational design scholars alike can think about and tackling the complexities of diversity and inclusion in military organizations. Um, Could you just provide us a framework for this discussion by giving a summary of Project Mars um, and just some key findings that soldier scholars and the broader political science community ought to know about it? Sure, great, and that's a that's a big question, um, and so uh, and this is the danger of giving an academic this much time to speak. But um, the book "Divided Armies" really tackles a very simple question, which is how do armies perform on the battle space on and in modern war since about 1800. Scholars have looked at lots of different factors. There's there's no shortage of theories. So we have number of soldiers, their technology, the political system. Um, but what I felt was missing was the soldiers themselves, sort of the, the human element of it, and in particular the ethnic and racial composition of the armies. So we didn't really have any data on this uh, in political science. And in fact, where I got the idea from was really Afghanistan. So I was embedded in an Afghan Kandak in 2009. Uh, I was watching the Afghan army being born, uh, listening to um, Kama Isaf talking about how they were building a new army, army was going to be the school of the nation, and all these soldiers had been trained, and it was going to be the sort of path forward for the United States to leave. But living on the base, I could see the other side of it. I could see uh, corruption. I could see violence inside the barracks along tribal lines, and along ethnic lines. And so when I left after that first trip, came back to the United States and said, well, surely this must matter. And, and we must have literature on diversity and, and inclusion, don't we? And, and it turns out we didn't really. 
And it was not really on our radar screen for our theory. So Project Mars became then this project to try and build up a new data set of conventional wars since 1800 that take into account Western and non-Western cases to try and orient us away from the Western cases that we know so well, World War One, World War Two, and then to build measures of inequality within the armies. And we really look at uh, two kind of pieces, what the ethnic composition of your army is and then how the state treats each of those ethnic groups. So if you think of it as a scale from zero to one, zero being an army with no um, exclusion or no inequality, a one being a maximal army with inequality. And as you get closer to the one, bad things start happening to the army. So you start seeing mass desertion, mass defection, similar to the things we saw in, in Afghanistan, actually. Uh, and so the idea with Project Mars is really to put a, a data set onto the table so that other scholars could then take diversity and inclusion and begin to rigorously investigate how it affects um, organizational design, as you say, battlefield performance, and other things that we might be interested in. No, that's great. And the terms you use, military equality versus military inequality, um, and you talked about this throughout your book, can you just describe how you define those terms? Absolutely. So the central sort of engine in my car, so to speak, is this inequality index that we built. And it's actually, if there are economists listening, they'll, they'll recognize this as a Gini coefficient. So there's a measure of income inequality in your society. All I've done is take that and measure the inequality inside the army itself. So it behaves the same way. We, we, it goes from zero to one, again, with one being sort of uh, the high end of the scale and, and meaning you have lots of inequality. Uh, but what do we mean by inequality? So we look at how the state is treating each of the ethnic groups in the army on the eve of war. And we look and see, it's actually quite, in some ways, quite crude. We look at it, uh, whether the state is fully including those groups as full citizens of society whether the state is looking at those groups as second-class citizens and exposing them to economic discrimination or political discrimination. Maybe they can't vote. Maybe their voting rights are being curtailed. Maybe their, uh, their ethnic sort of leaders are not being represented in the government, say. Uh, and then on a full end of, of inequality, some states will subject their ethnic groups or certain ethnic groups to violence and as sort of top-down, state-orchestrated violence against these groups. So as we get closer to full citizenship, that's what we would mean by equality. And as we get further away, we move through discrimination into absolute violence towards these groups, we begin to moving away uh, from being citizens into being something else, sub subjects maybe of the state, but not full participants, and so therefore unequal in the eyes of the state pre-war. So sometimes when we talk about equality, we start to question and wrestle with the idea of equity and how that ties in um, when we're looking at a problem set of equality. So from the perspective of, say, personnel policies or mm. talent management um, initiatives, how do you think we should feasibly reconcile the importance of equality with that complex nature of equity, particularly within military organizations? Yeah, and this is the, the $64 million question now because um, almost every army in the world is diverse and, and all have a diversity issue they have to resolve. And, and the notion of equity comes up in all kinds of things from promotion patterns to you know, an advancement to what kind of branch you're eligible for. 
Uh, and in some armies around the world, certain roles are subscribed for only certain ethnic groups. And so you can't actually be a fighter pilot if you're not from a particular group. Or, you know, historically, for example, in the Soviet times during World War II, you could only be a tank commander if you were an ethnic Russian. Other groups were, uh, you know, excluded from those positions. And so uh, every army has to balance the degree of diversity it has and uh, the um, historical average is five ethnic groups in an army. So there, we're talking quite uh, you know, a fair amount of diversity with um, standards of promotion, standards of retention, standards of recruitment, who comes into the army. And, and I think a big question is whether the army should reflect society or not. And there's a divided uh, opinion on that. Some would say uh, Huntington, for example, a good, uh, famous scholar of civil military affairs, said your army should be hermetically sealed in some ways from your society. Uh, others who are like myself believe that the army is reflective of society, that you can't divide them. And so you will automatically bring in some of these problems of equity and inequality into your army. And so you don't have a luxury of ignoring them. You're going to have to wrestle with them. Um, we can certainly talk different policies, and, and countries have tried lots of different things um, through promotion, through retention, through recruitment. Um, but, the, but there isn't an army yet that solved that. Right. And you had mentioned in a previous engagement the difference between diversity and inclusion when you were looking at some of the data. Could you just elaborate on that? Okay. So diversity is the number of ethnic and racial groups you have inside your army. So we would take the uh, pre-war roster of the army and we would simply catalog the number of groups that, are, that were often that's from a census or from the recruitment tables, things like that. Um, inclusion is uh, a much more difficult concept to, to capture. And uh, arguably, in Project Mars, we're really capturing, in, in, again, a fairly crude way. We're really looking at it from the group's perspective of whether you're included fully within society in terms of citizenship. Mm -hmm. So do you enjoy the protections and rights of full citizenship in that society, or are you pushed into a second-class citizenship role? Or you push even further than that into oftentimes we'll see certain regimes will treat ethnic groups as alien or outsider. They're still technically within the borders, but they're not really seen as part of the political community. And so in Project Mars, it's a very top-down kind of construct. It's really how the state is looking at those different ethnic groups and then the level of inclusion in terms of citizenship that they enjoy in that society. Great. And in, in your research, since we often think about diversity and inclusion together. They go hand in hand, DNI. Um, did you find that there were instances where diverse armies also were not inclusive? Yes, absolutely. So, and, and really the power of the argument comes from the inclusion piece, not necessarily the diversity piece. So there were lots of armies historically that have tried to fight as diverse entities, but not as inclusive ones. And so many of the, their soldiers were second-class citizens or didn't have enjoy political rights or had been subject to economic discrimination, uh, and yet the army still tried to, to continue on in that fashion. And not surprisingly, many of those soldiers tried to desert or defect or you know, maybe lower-scale activities like foot-dragging to slow to you know, obey orders and things like that. Uh, and really the, the power of the argument comes from the inclusion. You can, you can only get the benefits of diversity by also including those uh, groups in things like decision-making in the army, in the overall strategy that you're implementing, right? You have to be able to empower these different ethnic groups in order to harness the diversity. If you only have diversity but not inclusion, you're in trouble. 
Uh, and the stats uh, in the in the book will show that diversity imposes a little bit of cost. It actually can be harmful to have multiple ethnic groups in your army if you don't try and include them. Mm. So a lot of this conversation is, you know, in some ways, understandably focused on diversity. But what I don't want us to do is lose sight of the inclusion piece. Right? You don't get the benefits of diversity without the inclusion, and inclusion is arguably much harder to achieve than simply diversity is. And so if people are reading the book and they say, well, you know, Lyle says diversity matters, it does, but that's only half the story. And in some ways, it's the easy part of the story, not the hard one. This reminds me of the stance that we've discussed before as well. So here in the United States with our civil rights protections, we are afforded um, the luxury of not necessarily having to deal with blatant anti-diversity, so to speak. However, that leads to this sort of gray area, and it's now complicated on how we go about and approach these different initiatives and our culture. And so we've talked about how some military members, to include military leaders, I'm sure, having asserted that sort of stance um, along the lines of not seeing skin color, Mm -hmm. but seeing green. And by green, of course, they would be referring to all of us wearing the same military uniform. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, this may be a genuine effort aimed at equality in the military. And on the other hand, it may lead us to blindly equalize people to the point of being dismissive, right, of some of those important cultural considerations or or other important factors that serve to inform the, the different dimensions that make governance or organizational leadership necessarily nuanced. So with that being said, how do you approach this debate and what advice would you leave us with particularly here at West Point on that sort of stance yeah for every time I've heard um, you know we bleed green and I got a dollar I'd I'd be doing okay Um, yeah you look historically just take it out of the American context just for a moment historically armies have always tried to impose a, a corporate identity on their soldiers right they tried to take these pre-existing individuals and make them a team, right? And make them an instrument of the state. And that in some ways, you try to stamp out those pre-existing identities. At least that's the theory. And most of our theories in political science would assume that that's successful, right? You socialize people, individuals, citizens come into the military and they emerge as soldiers. A lot of the recent work though, and I think in some of the, in my own book shows that this is a fraught process. It, it doesn't happen automatically. And that by, in many ways, by imposing the state's vision of who the political community is and who counts, you can actually antagonize those existing ethnic, racial, tribal divisions, whatever they are in society, and, and get pushback. So that you don't necessarily stamp those out of existence, you reinforce them. And then they come into your army that way with those pre-existing identities reinforced and not removed. And so this notion uh, of, you know, we all bleed green and things like that, it sort of, it blurs away all of these tribal and ethnic religious differences that can be a source of strength. And by trying to stamp them out can actually create either hardship among the soldiers or anger or grievance among them at a state that doesn't recognize them as being legitimate. Mm. And particularly now as we in an era now of group claims, right? We're in an era of nationalism, right? These kind of identities are very sticky. They're hard to move. And the state, I think, and and part of the United States has got to deal with now a diverse population where these identities mean something to people. And by trying to stamp a vision down that they don't see themselves in, you're going to create more problems down the road. One thing when it comes to managing, sending our message 
if we were to establish a particular message about diversity and inclusion, we have to consider what the narratives are on social media, which we obviously can't control. And our soldiers or other service members who are on social media, whether they are professionals at the workplace um, or not, if they come back to social media and they post something that's not aligned with some of those values that we exemplify, um, it creates a really difficult problem set for people who are trying to manage the messaging. Absolutely. There's this notion that there's a, a wall between society and the army, I think it's never really been true, but is particularly true in our, not true in our own era now with social media is just tearing down these walls um, to the point now where we can track soldier sentiment on Twitter and on Facebook, right? And these creates all kinds of problems. And, and this is why when you try and have one dominant narrative and try and impose it, but you have a very dynamic ecosystem of soldiers who are interacting with society at all times. Facebook's on, social media's on, Twitter things. I'm, I'm a Twitter addict myself. So, you know, on that a lot, it, it is, makes it incredibly challenging, which is already historically challenging to get a, a state to impose a vision. But now in this era, when we can have so many different sources of information, where you can have multiple identities in some way, right? Your corporate identity at work, but you're also on Twitter or on your phone, right? I'm not saying you are. I'm saying it's theoretically a possibility, right? Um, this society is is here in the room now, in a, in a ways I think it wasn't necessarily in the past, mm-hmm. and and so I'm I'm not super optimistic for any kind of narrative campaign that doesn't acknowledge this, this very complex reality, and in some ways lean into it. Uh, the, the Twitter is giving you clues about what soldiers are upset about, whether they're being um, valued or whether they think they're being valued in the military. Rather than try to impose your own vision from on high, you should be working with these messages to see what the soldier's real sentiment is and begin to build that into maybe a more appealing message uh, to the soldiers. Yeah, it's certainly just an evolving problem set. Um, in addition to being necessarily nuanced. So I think that it's really interesting that you mention some of those struggles. Um, I wanted to come back to your discussion on pre-war conditions from your book. Um, And the book places emphasis on pre-war conditions, as in how a state treats different ethnic groups differently um, before the time of war. Um, And you highlighted that these conditions set the stage for military inequality and its impacts on battlefield performance. Mm -hmm. So that logic made a lot of sense and was unsurprising in a lot of ways. But I wanted to get your thoughts on a couple of things that came to mind on the notion of pre-war conditions. Um, And the first is going to be about civil relations. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other question is about development and training pipelines like the military academies, like like West Point. So for that first thought that I wanted to bring up, there is the widening CMR gap in the United States. Some stats, just to make the point about the widening gap between the civilian community and the military community, of course, would include the fact that only 0.4% of Americans currently serve. But also something that um, I was thinking about was a 2007 U.S. Army survey. It found that between the 304 military general officers at the time, they had about 180 children serving in the military. Meanwhile, the 535 members of Congress, they had fewer than 12 children serving. Mm. So while this does not necessarily speak to ethnic inequality, 
it does speak to inequality of political access. And so I just wanted to ask, do you have any initial reactions to this? And furthermore, do you believe this presents an obstacle to the notion that you describe in your book of transferring loyalties or allegiance from respective subnational groups to a collective um, superordinate allegiance to our nation? Yeah, this is, yeah, it's a great question. So uh, when I wrote the book, I, it was originally about all kinds of inequalities. So I had everything from gender and ideological polarization and and, and, and race and everything. And then the book got too big. <laughs> and it was already too big because it's 500 pages. Um, but uh, I, I absolutely believe that class inequalities, for example, which is partly what you're picking up with this political distinction uh, versus um, the, the serving chiefs and, and their family members, is, is crucial, right? This notion of shared sacrifice, I think there's a widening gap on whether the sacrifice and the burdens are being equally shared. They're not right now, and it's getting worse. Um, and so I think that is going to be uh, an important issue. I don't know what, if you call that political inequality necessarily or, or class inequalities. It, it's all – or income inequality maybe. It's all kind of built up inside that. But um, what makes this really hard is that there are multiple inequalities interacting with each other. And I, arguably the United States is, is lurching close to a CMR crisis uh, in some ways because of this widening gap over sacrifice, over burden sharing but also over polarization now. This is a deeply polarized country. And it's, it's funny, you know, when I started the book, no one cared about diversity. We weren't talking about this. Ten years, you know, fast forward, now it's a hot button for everybody. But diversity itself as an idea has become a political football. And it's been kicked around and it's being used as a wedge uh, against the military in some ways, right? And the, and the notion of diversity itself is being politicized. And this is dangerous, right? Because you have an incredibly diverse all-volunteer force and to be able to harness that diversity, you need to be able to put in place initiatives that, that capitalize on that. If the military is seen as an unwelcome place for certain groups, right, that will affect recruitment. And we've already started seeing that now after Black Lives Matter movements in the United States. Recruitment is down on certain groups. Right? We're starting to see now um, politicians contesting notions of diversity. Right, You're creating a woke army, so to speak. We want a woke army. They fight the best. If you want a, a lethal army, you want to have a woke army. But it's becoming this cudgel that we're using to, against the military by certain political elites. And I think this is a really deeply dangerous moment because it's not just theater. Um, it has a it has a, a you know a chance to really hurt uh, military effectiveness in this country, relations inside the military, recruitment, retention, all kinds of things that we, we should really care mm -hmm. about um, can be hurt by this sort of political um, sort of back and forth that's going on right now in DC. I think that we can draw some very important lessons from what we learn in the DNI world and what we learn from the CMR world as well. The other part of this question that came up as I was uh, reading about pre-war conditions in your book was the application to military academies like West Point or just other development and training organizations for the military. Should these institutions be points of emphasis to address pre-war conditions that mm -hmm. may lead to greater military inequality? Yeah, this is a great question. So I think the academies and these institutions writ large can do a number of different things. So one, the, the pre-existing conditions are not necessarily destiny. Mm -hmm. They are they are difficult to move. They're structural. They're they're tough um, and persistent, but they're not necessarily destiny. 
And I think inside the academies, you can inculcate a, a style of leadership, for example, that harnesses inclusion and diversity, right? This is, can be a laboratory for that model of leadership where a lot of these issues can be um, sort of hashed out here. And so you send your officers into their units. They can become agents of different styles of leadership, for example, to be able to harness this. The other thing is that I mean, this West Point here, we're in, we're in the, the wealth of this amazing brain power here. I mean, one of the things that I think um, I experience a lot now is, is reluctance to embrace a diversity and inclusion initiative because the data are maybe not as clear as people would want or they want to see more evidence and things like that. This could be a laboratory for doing those kinds of studies, mm-hmm. right? So you have a sense of what kind of leadership matters. You have a sense of how inclusion matters in the ranks, what it gives you in terms of problem solving or reaction times or ability to handle complex events on the battlefield. Uh, you have a good sense of that, and I would love to see research being done here so that you actually we can put numbers on these things. How much does diversity and inclusion matter? I mean, it's a normative goal and a moral goal, and those are important. But it also has these pragmatic battlefield applications. And I think there's a, a whole range of research that can be done there. Love to see the service academies take the lead on that too. So thinking about not just sort of leadership and training that next generation, but giving that next generation ammunition to sort of say, hey, these are the kind of initiatives that work. These are, or, or these are the kind of things that don't. And, and this is how we harness diversity and this is how we lose the benefits of it. And I think we have a general sense right now that diversity matters and that inclusion matters and it matters in certain ways. But we would love to get more accurate about that and, and really fine-tune these DNI initiatives. I mean, I think the Army is an institution is learning. I think it's trying. Um, but I think there could be a lot more research behind what works and what doesn't to get this much more fine-tuned. Mm. Having conversations about DNI are um, obviously they need to be thoughtful and they can also be very hard uh, conversations to have. Yeah. And so I certainly have notice that the politicization of DNI initiatives, as you were alluding to, is almost creating a sort of block from this exploration and the research. Absolutely. And I think the one key way to do it, which is maybe makes it a little less sensitive, is actually looking at America's own military history mm-hmm. and looking at it sort of in a backward sense. So yes, we would love to run experiments and things on, on diversity and inclusion, and those need to be done. But there's an entire historical legacy in the United States of racial inclusion and exclusion and how that has affected the formations and, and, and military performance over time. Uh, and, and those should be taught as well, right? The sense of the history where this comes from. This is not the first time we've been talking about diversity and inclusion in the United States and, and inside the military, right? These things come in waves. And it would be, I think, as, as we're forward-looking, and we should be, right? We want to think about what it means for performance. But there's a whole historical legacy we should be looking back to for lessons learned there and things that, uh, things that matter. Just to give you one really quick example, new research showing now on the effects of desegregation of the U.S. military in Korea, Right? desegregated units fought better than segregated units did. Once they were integrated, right, they took less casualties and they inflicted more on the on North Korean forces. So there's a historical legacy. We don't have to reach for other countries. It's in the American one, and it gives you this evidence that this has mattered in the past. And so I would love to see a, a backward-looking a sort of a research agenda as well as a, a forward-looking one. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time and for the wonderful conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soch Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to our podcast. 
If you'd like to reach out to the podcast team with any comments, critiques, or suggestions, please send them to socialresearchlab at westpoint.edu. That's S-O-S-H, research, lab, at westpoint.edu. We'd love to hear back from our listeners and are always looking for new episode ideas. The Soch Podcast is produced, edited, and recorded by faculty members of the Department of Social Sciences at the U.S. Military Academy, West Point. However, the views expressed on this podcast belong to those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. Thanks again, as always, to the West Point Band for letting us use their music. This is Majoriano, signing off. <laughs>